0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181.
1: During this time, I've had the privilege of leading several small groups uh, and serving on the elder board for a bit of time. I think probably more importantly, and I'm noticing this even more as my children enter adolescence, but I'm beginning to see this great picture of the important part of me being here is that I've had many of you being pouring into the lives of me and of my children. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be talking about parenting. And I want to set the stage right off the bat that though I'm talking to everybody who's in the life of a child or any other person, whether you're a grandparent, a mentor, a teacher, just somebody who gives a high-five on a Sunday morning. You really do matter, and I want to invite all of us to kind of enter into this message about parenting. I work as a marriage and family therapist full-time, predominantly with children, and I've seen the impact a broad support system can make on the life of a child. So know that you matter this morning. In order to get our minds around this topic, though, the band's going to be performing in just a moment a song by Jason Mraz called 93 Million Miles. And during this song, a painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. Many of you probably know the story of the prodigal son. We'll talk about it a little bit later on. But it is the story of a son who rejects his father's love and then returns to his father. Uh, So while the song is playing, what I would encourage you to do is just look at this painting. And let this question run through your mind. What message? uh, If you're good with it and you can follow along just verbally, I would encourage you to listen to these words. Don't feel the pressure to read them. And again, continue to look at this picture. Continue to look at this interchange between the Father and the Son as I read. And reflect on the Father's love for His Son. If you do want to follow along in the Bible, it's page 1048. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Under one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became very angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded, "Years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, let me quickly paint a picture of myself as a parent for all of you. Emily and I have four kids, as I mentioned earlier. They're ages 9, 10, 12, and 13. So most every night we sit down together for family dinner, conversation, and deep listening to one another. Okay, okay, in my dreams, this time includes rich, flourishing conversation and deep listening to one another. Now, certainly in reality, family dinner includes at least one person who's not crazy about the cauliflower, a kick or two under the table to clear up leg space, about four fart references, and at least one wrote those words, and literally the night that I wrote them, a kid complained about the cauliflower. I'm just, just saying. But it's in these moments, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, that my sense of security, or lack thereof, my feeling like I'm out of control, all of this starts to rise up straight from my heart out into my actions. Right there at the dinner table, I'm likely to stop making much eye contact, stop asking very many questions, and feel this need to quickly get done with my dinner and clear my plate. The truth is my lack of control and my distorted self-worth in this, and I look for protection in my withdrawal. Certainly not everyone shares my propensity for retreat. For some, this out of control family dinner might end in a loud confrontation, in a going in on the attack. The parent we meet in the story of the prodigal son and in the song therein, out of a full and form sense of security and worth. These twin pillars of security and worth allow the father to respond to his children out of love rather than responding out of a sense of threat. I believe as we look at this example and we look at a few others throughout Scripture, we will see that God is able to lavish his children with love and offer them life because he knows. Now, before we get too far into this, I need you all to do me a quick favor. Since we're talking about parenting, I would be irresponsible not to mention cell phones this morning. Uh, And I'll get into them in a bit more depth later on. But for now, I would like everybody who has a cell phone here with them. embarrassed to be uh, Take it out. Go ahead, open it up. This is like your one chance to do this shame-free for the rest of the service. Uh, And go ahead, just turn the camera on. Flip it around so that you can take a picture of yourself. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a selfie, but here's the deal. I want on this selfie to be no filters. I don't want you to look like a weird dog or anything like that. No filters. No goofy faces. No pictures of anybody else. You can smile if you want, but you don't even really have to do that. I don't think I will. Just take a picture of yourself as you are. So go ahead and just take a second to do that. It's very bright on my face. That's great. You guys are doing fantastic. Once you're done with that, just put it on airplane mode, and then you can put it away. Well, last week, Mike mentioned that music is an integral part of his family. This is no different in my household, an album, album or two, because once something captures me, I just keep playing it over and over and over again. As far as I can figure this out, it's because music is able to tap into an emotional experience that few other things can for me. This has been the case throughout my life, and as one who hasn't always been secure enough to express his own emotion, music is often a conduit for me to experience the deep. This doesn't mean I've always been wise in my choice of music. One of my favorite memories is from when I was a pre-adolescent 10-year-old kid. It was Christmas Day and my family had gathered at my aunt's house. Now, as I recall it, we were all sitting around the Christmas dish in this meal when my granddad, a very godly man whose image I have burned in my mind sitting at his table at dawn reading his Bible on the nights that I would spend the night at his house. Well, this man found a CD in his hands, and it happened to be a CD that I had received for Christmas that very morning. Kids, CDs are these things that are like this, and they play music. Well, my grandma take out the little sleeve with the lyrics on it, and right there at the Christmas table, read through the lyrics of my new CD out loud. Now, I would contend that you have not lived until you've heard your grandfather read the lyrics to the Humpty Dance by your the digital underground. That's true. You see, I love my granddad because he was able to pull off this feat without a hint of judgment or condescension toward me. If I learned anything from him in this moment, it was that despite my poor musical choice, pre-adolescent brain, he accepted me completely. And he was secure enough in himself to have some fun with my choices. You know, as the great theologian and boxer Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan. I'm afraid that this too often describes parenting, at least for me. Most parents have wonderful plans and expectations for, about life and what it will be like. But even before their kids be, can begin to talk, it becomes clear that the kid is not at all interested in fulfilling our plans. When our first son, Josh, was born, I spent a great deal of time praying that he would be independent. And then he turned two. And I realized that this might not have been the wisest prayer on my part. <laughs> if any of you know Josh, and many of you do, you know that he is an independent and strong-willed person. And I actually think this is absolutely worth celebrating unless it is a threat to my own sense of control, my own sense of security and safety, my own sense of sanity. The prodigal father from Luke 15 is a father who is secure in himself. It sets him free from a need to find security in his son. In other words, the behavior of the son is not a threat to the father's standing. I mean, this is a huge deal in the story. And when we parent like then we're not threatened by behavior. God the Father is exceptional at this. There are plenty of examples of God's plan being challenged by his kids throughout Scripture. Of course, the ultimate expression of God working with his kids, challenging his plan, is that of Jesus. God created something that turned chaotic and beyond repair. And I believe this deeply affected him emotionally. But his sense of security remained intact. God wasn't paralyzed by fear or by feeling unsafe. His plan didn't work. So he had with and through real people, not people who have to be manipulated, scared, or threatened into following. In putting his plan in the hands of people, God opens himself up to failure. All throughout the Bible, God makes it clear he's willing to move on to a different plan when the first one doesn't work out then it turns into an opportunity for creativity. God's creativity is alive throughout the books of the Old Testament. From the start, in Genesis, it's clear God is adapting and creating unceasingly. Creation itself certainly is the ultimate expression of this attribute. By seeing God's imagination and ingenuity show up after the world has been established. The events of humanity are not set in stone, so God is constantly having to innovate. God's trying things out. In a sense, he's throwing paint on a canvas to see what will stick. Certainly, God has strategy involved, and he has vision involved in this. And we know that God ultimately is the one in control, relationally spontaneous, relying on the actions, thoughts, prayers, and behavior of his children to influence the development of his plan. You see an insecure god would be difficult to bear. He wouldn't be able to handle the discomfort of a failed plan and certainly would not be able to continually see his children parent knowing that we are safe and secure then we are able to mutually learn with our children. Their creativity in the midst of our failed plans becomes a source of life for both parent and child. But I can too often attest, parenting from my own insecurity robs me of opportunities to grow through failure. In the attempt to help people live rightly, God shows that he is is God being passive or God being a pushover. Rather, God is fluid. We see God's security creating relationships with his children through the act of prayer. Prayer, usually as seen through the Bible, is designed to change God's mind or to influence his thinking on something. The accommodating nature of God is apparent in stories like in Genesis 18 about Abraham. When Abraham enters a high-stakes negotiation with God, through his pleading, Abraham is able to revise God's thoughts about the destruction of Sodom. The passage was about God testing Abraham to see how he would respond. I mean, I would have thought that surely God had this plan that he ended up with in his mind the entire time. But as I read this story now, it just seems to me that that doesn't fit with the overall nature of the story. Abraham did have a say, accommodated him rather than stubbornly holding on to an idea in order to feel like he was the one who had control. This is a demonstration not of God's weakness and inability to have his way, but of his grace and his security. As we continue to look through the Old Testament and then into the New It seems that God holds loosely to control, but steady to values. What a wonderful gift this would be to give our children. I mean, this, of course, doesn't come without challenge, particularly for those with young kids. The balance of teaching our children moment to moment while providing grace is difficult to find, but they should never be the end game. Holding steady to values means that we are seeing the forest through the trees. That what we aim for is teaching our kids kindness, grace, love, openness, rather than guilting or demanding our kids give us immediate and parent-pacifying obedience. It means that we and our children will survive without every single wrong being righted. I know personally that I'm holding on too tightly to control, When I go into my kids' bedroom for the second lecture. When I'm not able to let things go. Or I become exasperated that my child refuses to put on his nice shorts. I mean, imagine if God acted this way with his own children. Let's think about the Israelites. They had been enslaved in Egypt for generations. And God came up with this great plan to free them. In dramatic fashion, God showed up in a burning bush. And filled Moses in on his plan. Moses would be God's spokesperson and the leader of the Israelites. But as you might know, Moses in his fear wasn't so sure this was a great idea. So Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Times. What if they won't follow? What if they don't believe me? I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. And then we pick it up in Exodus 4.13. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, do you have any idea how much I've done for you? I'm asking you to do one thing and you can't even do that. You make me so mad. Go back to your tent and come back when you're ready to listen. <laughs> Certainly, what the secure God actually did was he worked with Moses to create a new plan. God was still angry. I mean, it's quite clear in Exodus 4.13 that God experienced anger. But his anger did not in and brought Moses a mouthpiece in his brother Aaron. An insecure God would be near impossible to bear. God, in his security, shows us that growth takes time, and it often takes pain. But in the end, he realizes that children learn more through osmosis than through cramming. I've crammed for plenty of tests, and I've actually done quite well on those tests. But if you were to ask me anything about the subject that I crammed for two weeks after the test, I would have absolutely no idea what you were talking about. In the same way, I can demand or manipulate my child into obedience. And I can actually be quite good at that. But if our children are to learn from us, it will be a slow, unconscious assimilation of our values. When I was a teenager, around 14 or 15 years old, I was sitting at the table with my parents one night. My brother was in his bedroom, probably doing homework. Now, I don't re- recall it being anybody's birthday, but I do recall that we were eating birthday cake for some reason. And My dad took his plate up in the air off the table in order to take a bite, and I saw that mischievous look in my mom's eyes. Very slyly, she reached her hand under the plate and gently let it into my dad's face. This set off a chain of events that culminated in a food fight spreading through the kitchen into my brother's room where my parents included him in the silliness and the fun. Eric's songs was an act of playfulness. This wasn't an explicit value that was written in a mission statement in the house my mom grew up in. But his playfulness slowly seeped into her soul. I think about us now when we sit around the dinner table and one child's making fun of another. I want to raise my voice and control the situation. But it's silly, right? My yelling and demanding kindness from my kids does little to actually produce kindness. Hopefully, as they interact with me and see me with them and with- this is an invitational way of parenting. This freedom of security displayed by the prodigal God meant he could invite rather than chase. This seems to be true of God's character throughout Scripture. God simply does not chase. To chase means to go after something in order to fill a need in ourselves. To invite means to vulnerably open ourselves to meet the need of another. When his son asked for his share of the property, the father in Luke 15 willingly gave it to him. He didn't run after his son. He didn't ask him to stay. He allowed him to go knowing that it would be painful, but willing to bear the pain. Timothy Keller in a book about this very passage, rather than, is asking his father to tear his life apart. And the father does so for the love of his son. Most of Jesus' listeners would have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond like this. The father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor, as well as the pain of rejected love. Ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry, retaliate, and do what we can to diminish our affection for the rejecting person so we don't hurt so much. But this father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. It's not indicated in the story, but I can imagine the younger son has a higher life. It reminds me of the invitation in Romans 2, 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God doesn't chase us down and demand we change. He offers us kindness and allows us to respond or not. The song 93 Million Miles says, Just know you are never alone. You can always come back home. You are never alone. You're secure. You can always come back home. You are worthwhile. My worst moment, and this is likely because it becomes very difficult for me to see my children with eyes that see their worthwhileness when I'm not experiencing it myself. I'm comforted knowing that God the Father does not take my petulance and coldness as a parent personally. Because God knows his own value. He's able to see me as a person worth, worthy, independent of my actions. About three months ago, I saw a video regarding worth. that had a big impact on me personally and as a parent. I want to show it to you now. It's about three minutes long, so hang in there with it. But it's in a much better way than I could.
2: Kent Hoffman, and I'm a clinician who has, for the past 40 years, worked with people struggling with often severe anxiety and depression, homeless adults, homeless teenagers, college professors, doctors, lawyers, and parents from all walks of life. In all that time, the most important thing I've come to know can be summarized in nine simple words. Meat has infinite worth. That's it. That's the entire learning. No arguing, no convincing, just nine words. Every person we will ever meet has infinite worth. I first heard those words on October 3rd, 1970 from Frank Kimper, my first clinical professor in graduate school. Before hearing his words, I divided people into tidy categories, good versus bad, okay and not okay, acceptable, not acceptable, all of which were highly conditional. In five seconds, that all shattered. Every person we will ever meet, no matter. no person is worth more than any other person. Truth be told, I would now define evil as the belief that some people are worth more than other people. Underneath our exterior attributes, our so-called beauty or intelligence, our noticeable capacities or lack thereof, we each share the exact same infinite worth. Which all adds up to this. No matter who you are, no matter how comfortable or lost, happy or broken, if you're hearing these words, the only thing that matters is that you know that you matter and you matter absolutely. And so does every other person you'll ever meet.
1: You will ever meet has infinite worth. This is liberating as a child of God. God valuing me as worthwhile means that my moment to moment failure doesn't disrupt my connection with God. And my failure or success does not reflect God's own worth. God is already enough. He wants what's best for me and He has a high standard. But he knows that growth is mostly glacial. When we experience the security of knowing that God has accepted us, that he has determined that we are valuable, worthwhile, and lovable, then we are more fully able to see others as such. We can release the need to demand our kids behave or show us affection or praise and thank us in order for us to feel worthy. In other words, we can stop looking for worth in the success and the health of our children. Dallas Willard in Life Without Lack puts it this way, But death to self includes our desires about our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, any whom we love. We love them. This does not mean that we don't seek to do good and loving things that we can for them. It simply means we do not confuse their well-being with our own sense of self-worth. Certainly, this is no easy task, and it's often accompanied by tremendous pain. I mean, you see, we can parent in security and in our own sense of worth, but that doesn't guarantee any outcome. Parenting should come with heaps of grace, Grace that covers our own sense of failure and our own shortcomings. Well, so far, this has been a lot to actually play out practically. When we parent in security and through worth, we have the vision to interact with our kids in ways that promote their own sense of security and worth. There's an incredible book I would recommend everybody check out, but particularly parents, called Reclaiming Conversations. It's written by an MIT psychologist named Sherry Turkle. Turkle writes about building our children's sense of worth through cell phone-free conversational time. When we commit to having a regular family dinner, free of cell phones, then we have the opportunity to look our kids in the eyes and to hear their stories. Turkle refers to these the boring bits. And she actually believes that they're a critical part of a child experiencing his or her own worth and security. She writes, if a moment in a conversation is slow, There's no way to know when things will pick up except to stay with the conversation. People take time to think, and they think of something new. A child of any age who has an adult looking at them and allowing them space to express their thoughts is receiving the message that he or she is full of worth. The message sounds something like this. You don't have to impress me in order to be important to me. I love you, even if you're dull. We can't ignore cell phones in this conversation about parenting. Phones are put down and we ask our kids to do the same, generate opportunities for us to interact. I realize this may be hard, and it might even feel awkward if it's not already a practice in your own home. But it's okay to experience some growing pains while parenting. Try committing to making the kitchen or the car a device-free zone. Finally, one way to practically parent insecurity and worth is just to simply spend time with your child, no matter the age. Make this time about you and your child. With young kids, this might mean spending 10 minutes a day in child-directed play. If you have an adolescent, let them choose a date. I would encourage you to demonstrate that this time is about your child, to leave your cell phone at home or in a different room, and commit to not posting a single thing on Facebook or any other social media about that time. Just make it about you and your child. Choose to enter into these activities knowing that there will be more mundane than magic. And that someone sharing the mundane with us is actually where we learn we are lovable. And try to see my own kids this way. To have this mantra, infinite worth, run through my mind every time that they ask me why or if they could play video games or complain about dinner. And I have to be honest, it took me about three minutes for that mantra to change from infinite worth to infinite worm. Heaps of grace. The truth is, though, that my reaction in that moment was not an indication of my child's worth, but about my own perception. My own feeling like I'm not enough as a father. My own feeling like I don't bring anything to the table when I walk in the door. We can try to choose to see our kids with infinite worth, but it will likely fall short if we haven't settled the question of our own worth. The greatest gift we can give our children, whether as parents, grandparents, mentors, coaches, teachers, or anybody in the life of a child, is to see ourselves as God sees us. You matter. And you matter absolutely. You matter. And you matter absolutely. Even when you shame them, and to behaving when you're out to dinner so that you don't get embarrassed. You matter, and you matter absolutely. Even when your child lies to you, you matter, and you matter absolutely. Even when you retreat at the dinner table, you matter, and you matter absolutely. To end this service, I want to give each of us an opportunity to see ourselves as God sees us. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to take out your phones again. On the screen will be a song and a video, but I encourage you for these next four minutes, as you listen to the song, to just look at your photo. If you don't have a phone with you this morning, I encourage you to open your hands, put them in your lap and look at your hands. Or perhaps close your eyes and imagine yourself. As you look at yourself, reflect on the fact that God has valued you as infinitely worthy. For many, this experience will go by quickly and without a problem. For many, including myself, these four minutes might be excruciatingly long, maybe even painful. Stick with it, even through the discomfort, and know that you are infinitely worthy. i mm-hmm. To think that one sermon or one experience fixes all the pain that we may have encountered while parenting. And I just want to encourage you if you're coming up and feeling stuck, there are resources. Uh, contact the church. We have spiritual directors, we have connections with counselors that can help you walk through some of these issues. But now, may the God who demonstrates that we are safe and worthwhile fill you with patience, grace, and power. May the peace of Christ be with you all.